0: Well, I want to encourage you to turn with me this morning to 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 5. Uh, we have been going through this summer, this book of uh, 1 Samuel, and we're, we're going to actually cover two chapters this morning, believe it or not, but uh, we're only going to read one. Uh, I don't think we can read two chapters this morning. It might take up all the time, but we're going to read chapter 5. We're actually going to be looking at chapter 5 and 6 this morning. But after you found 1 Samuel 5, stand with me. Let's read it together, beginning there in verse 1. Now, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold "...only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories." When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel around and After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion, and he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us. And our people they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to gather in your name. We thank you that we are free to worship you, that we can uh, just come and exalt your name and uh, sing our praises to you because you are more than worthy. And Lord, we again today acknowledge that you are Lord of all, that you are sovereign, ruler, of all things and uh, lord we see that in uh, your word and we see the truths that you've given to us even in the old testament as we uh, see these accounts of your activity and uh, the revelation of yourself to men so lord we pray once again this morning that we would uh, not only learn truths that you have for us but that we would be ready and open and receptive and uh, ready to obey and ready to line up with what you have for us so lord once again uh, we thank you we praise you and we thank you for the salvation we have in christ and we thank you for uh the church and and for this opportunity once again to worship and to grow in you so lord bless this time once again in jesus name amen Well, I don't do this very often, but I just have to borrow my title this morning: archaeological discoveries with a K A R K E O L O G I C A L. I just couldn't improve on this one from Dale Ralph Davis. We have two chapters here in First Samuel that teach us some important things about God, and they are connected with the Ark of the Covenant. These archaeological discoveries were experienced not only by the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, but also by the Israelites themselves. We're going to discover three primary things about God. The humor of God, the heavy hand of God, and the holiness of God. Now, that's our outline, and we begin with the humor of God. Now, some might be surprised by this, but chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, is really a very humorous account. And although some may think it is irreverent to say that God has a sense of humor, I think it comes out in certain biblical passage passages, and this is one of those. The scene is set in a place called Ashdod, which was one of the five major cities of the Philistines. It was located about 35 miles west of Jerusalem and was the northernmost of the three Philistine coastal cities. In fact, it was probably what we would call the capital of the Philistines located located about three miles from the Mediterranean coast. This is the scene of the first archaeological discovery. And as I'm sure you know, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and had taken it to Ashdod and placed it before the image of Dagon, their god, in his shrine. Dagon was the god of vegetation or grain and was worshipped throughout Mesopotamia. He was the most prominent of the Philistine gods. And, of course, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why they did this. Davis writes, one needn't be perceptive to get the point. Here, in the gospel according to the Philistines, was... Yahweh, represented by the ark, the defeated God, brought before Dagon, the victorious God, or so they thought. But before they could even finish their frosted mini-wheats the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord that's chapter 5, verse 3. Oh my, that was unexpected. And then, with a master stroke in the next line, the author of this book, probably with tongue-in-cheek, a twinkle in his eye and acid in his ink, wrote this. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. What? This is your most powerful God, and you have to set him back up in his place. This is a punchline. It might not sound like a punchline, but can you imagine a God that has to be stood back up again? What kind of God is that? And think how a godly Israelite would have responded when he heard this with the only possible pious response that you could have, which is laughter to the deepest degree. Oh, but things got worse than this. The next day they go out and discover that old Dagon has fallen down again but this time he also has his head and his hands cut off. There's just a stump of him left. Davis says, this is a regular humpty-dumpty situation with no Elmer's glue. No home field advantage here. Dagon is getting pulverized on his own turf. He's getting the very godness knocked out of him. It's as if the cherubim on top of the mercy seat have been turned loose on him, and now there's only a piece of him left. No mercy for Dagon. Now, I say all this in kind of a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, but the point here is obvious. The so-called defeated God is demonstrating his superiority over the so-called victorious God. In verse 7, even the Philistines will admit that the God of Israel is out their God. Oh, but listen, this account is not just given to make us laugh. God wants his people to realize that, Unlike Dagon, he doesn't need anybody to set him back up again. In fact, he doesn't need any help from his people at all. He is more than able to fight the Philistines all by himself. He doesn't need anybody to cheer him on or to figure out a plan for the recovery of the ark. He will return the ark to Israel all by himself. Yes, we find humor here, but it is didactic humor. It is humor that teaches us something very important about God. It teaches us of the absolute supremacy of God and his total sufficiency in and of himself. The lesson for Israel is, first of all, they had learned you can't treat God like some kind of a rabbit's foot, like some kind of lucky charm. You can't manipulate the true God for your own convenience. We saw that last time. But also that we should never begin to think that God needs our assistance in some way. He is the one who carries us, not the other way around. And that is exactly what it says, not only in this text, but in Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 4. It is significant to understand that in pagan idolatry, the gods are dependent on men. But this passage tells us that is not the case with the true and living God. Those... False gods are dependent upon men because they're nothing, just wood and stone. But the God of the Bible is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is not dependent on any man. So not only does this episode in Ashdod teach the Philistines an important lesson, it also teaches us, his people, that he is absolutely supreme, and that he is utterly independent of his people. Another way to say this is to say that Yahweh is unlike Dagon or any other false god in that he does not need to be protected and sustained by his people. He's not going to fall down to begin with, but he certainly does not need anyone to set him back up again. Oh, but there's a danger here for the church. We think we're beyond this kind of thinking. We think we're not as dim-witted as they were, so we would never fall into this way of thinking. Really? Then why do we sing songs that say things like, He has no hands but our hands, and no feet but our feet? Why do we sing songs that imply that we have to rise up as men of God and bring in the day of brotherhood? Why are we the ones who are going to end the night of wrong? Now, I understand the the way those songs are used. But sometimes we begin to even buy into the idea that God's dependent on us in some way. He's not. He's not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should cease serving God with all our heart and with all our strength. But what I'm saying is that God does not really need us to accomplish his purposes. He chooses to use us. But he does not really need us. And again, that does not mean he doesn't want us. Of course he does, as the word of God declares. But our God is absolutely omnipotent and he needs no man. We should always be careful that we are not putting the true and living God on the same plane as Dagon There's a second main section here where we find the second archaeological discovery, and that is the heavy hand of God. As is reflected in the lion character in the Chronicles of Narnia, this is no tame God that the Philistines have supposedly conquered. The ark had fallen into their hands, but now they would fall into God's hands. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. The word for ravaged there can be translated destroyed, devastated, terrorized, or brought desolation. And note, I put the word heavy in front of the word hand in my outline because it's used that way in this verse. Interestingly, the same root word for the word glory here is the word that he uses, and it means weighty. You know, I can remember as I was growing up back in the, 60s and 70s, that people used to say, that's heavy, man. Remember that saying? That was a a code phrase for something that had a lot of significance. But that's what we see here. God plagued them with tumors of some kind. And scholars have debated exactly what this consisted of and have generally taken this as either hemorrhoids or something akin to the bubonic plague. And the mention of rats or mice in chapter 6, verse 5, has led many to conclude that this was something caused by rodents. And since rats were carriers of the bubonic plague, some have reached the conclusion that this is what is being described here. Well, whatever this was, it was bad. And look at what the Philistines said in chapter 5, verse 7. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. Now, Dagon had already been devastated by Yahweh, and now the Philistines were as well. What was their conclusion? We've got to get rid of this thing. So what did they do? Well, they sent it over to Gath, another philistine city and guess what the plague and the panic went with it notice the question the lords of the philistines were wrestling with in verse 8 what shall we do with the ark of the god of israel this thing became like a hot potato Verse 10 tells us they decided to send it on to Ekron, but the Ekron city council met them at the city limits and said, no way, we won't take it. By this point, it had become clear to the Philistines that it wasn't because the people of Ashdod were greater sinners than those in the other Philistine cities. That was not why their funeral directors had been so busy. It was because of the God of Israel. The presence of the Ark of God had brought disease and death in Ashdod and Gath. And so the people of Ekron said, We want no part in that. And they clearly understood by this point that this was nothing less than the heavy hand of the true and living God. Verse 10 says, and it happened as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. This is serious business. So it must be taken care of. Look at verses 11 and 12. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the idea of that last sentence is that those who did not die from the plague wished they could. They were in pain and agony, and their cry went up to heaven. Well, by the time we get to chapter 6, we find out that had been going on for seven months. The consensus had become clear. We've got to send the ark back to the land of Israel. But the question was, how do we do that? Naturally, the lords of the Philistines didn't know. So they called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. In other words, they called on the clergy for the answer here. Now, were these priests and diviners Philistines or Jews? This is something scholars debate. It's somewhat Unclear from the text. Verses 4 and 5 seem to indicate that they were not Philistines with the use of the pronoun you. But verse 9 seems to indicate they were Philistines by the use of the pronoun us. Interestingly, the word for diviners in chapter 6 verse 2 is used all throughout scripture to refer to idolatrous or superstitious divining and although there are examples of divining even in israel this may point to the fact that these were philistine diviners either way they know enough to instruct the lords of the philistines in what to do They tell them that it is imperative to include a guilt offering as they send the ark back. And we have the priests complete instructions in verses 4 through 9. Since there are five lords of the Philistines, they must send five gold tumors and five gold rats. And they're to put them in a box next to the ark on a brand new cart pulled by Two cows that have never pulled a cart. And the nursing calves of these cows are to be taken away from them and locked up at home. Verse 9 tells us how they will know what all this means. It says, And watch if it, the ark, goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he, Yahweh, has done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Beth Shemesh was the first Israelite town that they would come to because it was just across the border into Judah. In other words, the ark would now be going back into Jewish territory. In the minds of the Philistines... They were giving every opportunity for Yahweh to write his signature across these circumstances, but they made it as difficult as they possibly could. This is much like the God contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah made it as clear as possible that Yahweh was the one true God as he had them pour buckets of water on the altar before the fire fell. He wanted it to be as clear as it could possibly be that this was the only true God. And the greater the odds of something something happening, the clearer it was that God was at work And so it is here as well, because even city boys and girls know that nursing cows would naturally go to where their calves are. They would not go in the opposite direction. And for them to go down the road to Beth Shemesh would mean that they were being guided by an invisible hand, the hand of Yahweh. And this would be contrary to nature. If they did this, the Philistines would know without doubt that Yahweh was the one behind this great calamity. Well, what happened? Drop down to verse 12 of chapter 6. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. The cows did exactly the opposite of what you would expect. And this is highlighted by the fact that they were lowing as they went. Their lowing was a clear sign that they were thinking about their calves as they went the opposite direction from where they were. And of course, the Philistines were watching all this. God was speaking to them through cows instead of prophets. They did not have the entire law of God, but they did have some revelation of His nature and supremacy. They did have some truth about the one true God, and they were responsible for how they responded to the truth they were exposed to. In the same way, in Romans chapter 1, We read that even unbelievers are held accountable to God for the amount of revelation they have. In this case, Yahweh spoke to them in a way they could understand. That He Himself had destroyed their God, had smitten their land, and had struck their bodies with tumors. They no longer had the luxury of believing that all of this was a mere coincidence. Coincidence. They could no longer think that all this happened by mere chance. So what will they do now with such revelation? Should they not at least begin to serve or fear this true and living God? After all, it is now obvious that He is real and powerful. Will they begin to worship Him instead of their false God? Or will they go back to Ashdod and take old Dagon to the graven image repair shop and get his head and his hands put back on? Maybe they'll go back and establish a research firm for the eradication of rats through pesticides. Or perhaps they'll start wearing t-shirts that that read, I survived the plague of 1070. The vast majority of the Philistines probably did what most people do today. They simply sighed and said, I'm glad that's over with. And they went on with their pagan lives. Davis writes, it's so easy for us sinners, Philistine or otherwise, to respond only to the pain and not to the truth of the situation. In many cases, our immediate fears are alleviated, but our heads are no wiser and our hearts no softer and our lives are still unchanged. In fact, there's a warning in verse 6 not to be foolish like the Egyptians were. And, of course, I'm sure you remember that Pharaoh and the Egyptians hardened their hearts against God and ended up with God destroying their armies. And the Philistines, in the same way, would pay a high price if they demonstrated the same kind of foolishness. They should have recognized that Dagon is nothing. And that there is only one true God, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. By the way, there's another detail that I want you to note in verse 12. Look at it again. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Look at that. The lords of the Philistines themselves accompanied the ark back to Israel. This is a striking testimony as to how problematic the ark had been to them. Things had gotten so bad, they could not trust this with someone else. They themselves would go with the ark to the border of Judah and notice what happened when the ark arrived in Beth Shemesh. Look with me at verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. And the ark came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on, on the large stone. And the, be, the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the Israelites saw the ark, they completely forgot about the wheat that they were harvesting. They immediately began to rejoice that the ark had returned. ...to Israel. And notice the Israelites know better than to personally benefit in any way from this situation. They don't take the the cart and use it for their own purposes. They break it up and they use it for firewood for the sacrifice. The very ark of God had been on it, so it is now sacred. They can never use it for common purposes. The cows also were holy to the Lord. They must be offered up as burnt offerings to the Lord. In fact, by walking right up and stopping at the large stone, it is as if they understand that they are going now to the altar of sacrifice. And this leads us to the third and final section Of this passage that reflects the holiness of God. Here the story takes an interesting turn. That you might not expect. You would expect that God would be hard on the Philistines. After all they're a bunch of pagans. But now we see where God also teaches Israel about his holiness. In chapter 6 verses verse 13 down to chapter 7, verse 1, we see where the destructive hand of Yahweh falls on His own covenant people, especially when His people violate His holiness. And the primary focus of this section is on verse 19, so look at it with me. And He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark, Of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now that's the New American standard, but there's some major problems here. There are indications that the Hebrew text of verse 19 may have been altered in the process of transmission. And I usually don't like to get bogged down in the technical details of scholarly debates. But in this case, I think we need to wade through this just a little bit. I think it is critical to this particular passage. First, we have to ask the question, how many people did Yahweh strike down? The traditional Hebrew text has, as it is here in the New American Standard, 50,000 70, or as it literally reads in the Hebrew, 70 men, 50,000 men. What's the problem here? Well, for one thing, the entire population of Beth Shemesh could not have been this large. Some Hebrew manuscripts do not have the 50,000 reference, but only have 70. So this have, may have been a copy error, and it is probably best to read this as 70 men. But there's another question here. Exactly why did Yahweh strike these men down? Davis says, English versions that follow the Hebrew text almost uniformly render because they looked Into the ark of Yahweh. But the grammatical combination Hebrew verb plus the preposition that follows means to look at or gaze at the ark, not into it. The ark of God was so holy that the people of Israel were were not allowed to gaze upon it. And we know that it was always kept inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple. And even when it was in transit through the wilderness, it was always covered. So the people could not stand and gaze at it. Even the priests could not go in and look at it. In fact, even the high priest could not do so. And although he would go into the Holy of Holies once each year to sprinkle the blood of atonement over the mercy seat, he was not allowed to stay very long in its presence. He had to hurry and sprinkle the blood and then exit. So getting back to the men of Beth Shemesh, their offense was not likely that of opening up the ark and looking to see what was inside. In other words, this was not a scene out of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, the offense was they stood and gazed at it. Either way, they were violating the holiness of God. And it was apparently not covered properly. And this gazing at the ark flew in the face of the regulations that God had given for it. And we might not, uh, we might think this is a too severe punishment for some who are just innocent victims here. But the point is that God is absolutely holy and he will not allow his holiness to be violated. Oh, but there's a third question we need to ask. What if The men of Beth Shemesh were not struck down for gazing at the ark, but for another reason. The Septuagint reads entirely different from the Hebrew text. It says, and the sons of Jeconiah did not rejoice with the men of Beth Shemesh because or possibly when they saw the ark Of the Lord. Interesting. Who are the sons of Jeconiah? It seems they are mentioned here in the Septuagint text out of the blue. What happened here? Had the translator of this text been working way too late into the night, or did he have a better manuscript? Davis writes, There's something to be said for following the Septuagint at this point. First, the sons of Jeconiah did not rejoice, carries a tone of originality about it. It is not the sort of detail invented out of whole cloth. Second, the passage had regularly introduced new subjects into the account, and the Septuagint's sons of Jeconiah would fit this pattern. Third, the non-rejoicing sons of Jeconiah would form a useful contrast to the rejoicing harvesters in verse 13. In other words, when the ark arrived in Beth Shemesh, there was a double response. Some rejoiced, but others did not. Those who did not rejoice were the ones that were struck down by God. In other words, the ones who were struck down were the ones who said in their hearts, who cares about the ark of God? Now, in many ways, this makes much more sense. And the overall point is that God's holiness is being violated and if this is the way the text should read the way God's holiness is being violated is by indifference and apathy and by the way we can be guilty of the very same thing anytime we demonstrate that same kind of indifference to the things of God Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic here about this because it's not clear enough, but either way, the judgment of God had to do with the fact that His holiness was violated. And if you follow the traditional Hebrew text in verse 19, you would say that the men of Beth Shemesh were struck down for an act of sacrilege. They were treating the ark of God in disrespect in some way. Now, of course, the Philistines, they don't know how to handle the Ark of God, and they can't be responsible for that because they're pagans. They're not, uh, they were not instructed on how to handle the Ark of God. But the Israelites had the law, and in Numbers 4, 1 through 20, they had explicit instructions on how to treat the Ark of the Covenant. But going back to the text of 1 Samuel 6, notice the verbal response of those in Beth Shemesh who were not struck dead. Look at verse 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall it go up from us? Now, they asked two questions. The first one was a good question. The second one, not so much. The first question acknowledges that there is no one who can ever stand before this holy and righteous God when he brings his judgments. But the second question, I think, is caught better by the New English Bible. It says, to whom can we send it, this ark, to be rid of the Lord? In other words... They were saying, no one can stand before this holy God, so help us know how we can get him to leave us alone. That's what this is saying. And this, of course, was the same thing that was asked by the Gerasenes when Jesus revealed his mighty Power in their midst in Mark chapter 5. It was obvious to them that Jesus was God in human flesh, so they pleaded with him to leave their region of the country. This is the same idea here at Beth Shemesh. And rather than looking at their own hearts and evaluating why God is doing this, and rather than learning from this and lining up with God and honoring him as holy... They simply ask, how are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to get rid of this thing? How are we going to get God to leave us alone? And of course, that's the very same kind of thinking we see so often in our day and time. How many people see God as a nuisance? Someone they think that will make their life miserable. How many... People today just want to forget about God and remove Him from their life. Of course, we would not expect today to look up and see the Ark of the Covenant coming down the road in our direction. But how often do we fail to treat the God of the Bible with the honor that is due to Him? How often do we fail to treat Him? As absolutely holy. I mean, think about it. People today talk about God as the man upstairs. You know, people put uh, God is my co-pilot bumper stickers on their cars. People have this idea of God that he's someone that we can be chums with, that we can just pal around with. And we often fail to treat him with the reverence he deserves. We do, in fact, need to have the attitude reflected in the first question of the people of Beth Shemesh. We need to ask, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And what's the answer to that question? No one. No one. But we must not fall into the error of the second question. We must not have a heart that desires for Him to be removed from us. Rather, we must have a heart that sees him as our greatest joy and source of delight. Well, these are the archaeological discoveries that we find here in 1 Samuel. We see the absolute supremacy of Yahweh and his incredible holiness. Here we see that he is far from being a helpless God, but is more than able to accomplish all his good purposes. Here we see that he can communicate his truth through cows just as easily as prophets. And here we see that he is Lord of all. That we are supremely blessed to be able to call him our God. What about you this morning? Do you know him? Is he your God? Is He your Lord and Savior? Do you know Jesus Christ in a personal way as one that you have put your faith and trust in for eternal life? Are you living for Him, the Supreme One, the one and only true and living God? I pray that You are. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that You would help us just to see the immense impact of this passage of scripture this account that took place in history and yet this account that is intended to reveal to us who you are that you are the one and only omnipotent lord of all that you are the only true god the holy one that there, that there's none like you. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to just grasp the significance of this. And Lord, that we might respond with saving faith. Those that have not trusted in Christ for salvation. And that we as your people, that we might understand and just fully embrace the fact that uh, yeah. there is absolutely none like you. And that uh, you are the great God that we serve. So there's... Never a reason for us to ever be ashamed and to ever pull back from serving you with our whole hearts. So, Lord, help us to do that. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.